Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamic Thought Podcast, episode one. I'm your host, Iyad, along with Atsis. And we're here with two Hadith researchers, Mushkadana and Abdullah Mu'taz. Assalamu alaikum, guys. How's it going? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It's all good, alhamdulillah. How are you? Good, Mushkadana. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourselves. How, how did you guys get into Hadith studies, uh, Mushkadana? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I've always had an interest in hadith. And there was one day when I got a message on WhatsApp. Someone shared a hadith on WhatsApp. And he claimed that it was authentic. And so I decided, you know what? I want to actually see if I can verify the authenticity of this report. And so I just got back home from school, you know, sat down at the kitchen table for maybe I don't know, like four hours. And I was like really into it. And I think from there, I pretty much developed an interest. Um, I, already studied, I had already studied, you know, some texts from that time. Um, but that was really what sparked it. And then it just, um, it clicked from there. And uh, I've been addicted since then. It's not, it's not a awesome. very dramatic story, to be honest. But that, that is well, I'm, not everyone digs in that deep, though, to find out the reliability of things. How about you, Abdullah? So for me, um, it, it came because I was uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was looking through my dad's library and I, and I, and I came across this book. And in the book, um, the author was critiquing a hadith. And he said something to the effect that the transmitters of this hadith are reliable, yet the hadith is still weak. And I had, at this point, literally studied nothing of hadith. And I was just, uh, you know, amazed. How is he saying that they're reliable, they're thiqat? He's praising them, but at the same time, he's saying the hadith is not authentic. And then, to my amazement, he says, because so-and-so in the chain didn't actually meet so-and-so. And I'm like, how does this person know what he's talking about the, the author you know died in i think 98 or 99 how does he know that this person you know living in the second islamic century how does how does he know that he actually didn't meet the next person so i i wanted to find out the answer for that um so i uh started reading in hadith i consulted a few people and they sent me some books and I started reading just to get an answer, you know, a brief um, idea on what hadith actually is about. And it went from there. I, I never wanted to be a talib alim. I, I, I'm not a talib alim. Um, and so my, my interest in hadith is, is purely from that. Um, I just took a liking to it. And then I stuck with it. Awesome. That's it. Okay. So... I mean, one of the directions and the objectives of this podcast is to sort of introduce the idea of critical thinking that's required not only within Islamic scholarship today, but amongst the Muslim Ummah in general. Um, there seems to be this issue that Muslims, generally speaking, have the inability to objectively perform analysis and evaluate certain issues pertaining to the Islamic texts and thereafter reach a judgment or a conclusion that can strengthen their belief and faith. 
And one of the key factors that really involved the decline of critical thinking has been hadith. Um, how do we actually establish the hadith to be something that is, you know, at the status of something that's objectively divine in nature and something that's truth, uh, the reality that's, you know, that Rasulullah said within his statements or his actions. Now, I just wanted to begin by the question of when it comes to hadith and when it comes to hadith criticism, where is the criticism placed into the hadith as both a science and both as, you know, a method of actually evaluating this truth? How can it be trusted? Oh, mashallah. Uh, those are a lot of big questions. Um, to answer. <laughs> now, with that being said, I mean, I'll tell you this. Um, hadith really is a manifestation of, of being critical because we essentially have a huge uh, hadith corpus, right? Um, the Islamic hadith corpus, which manifests in all the hadith books we have today, you know, the hundreds of books. Um, and the reality of the matter is that a lot of these hadith um, support our theology, they're in line with our theology, they're, they're in line with a lot of our, you know, fiqh positions that we have adopted today. Yet, um, our scholarship chooses to be critical with these reports and not just blindly accept everything, right? And so we acknowledge that uh, some of these reports are forgeries. Some of them are weak. Um, some of them cannot be dated back to the Prophet. And so it's the epitome of um, this objective um, approach, critical approach um, to to texts like, you know, the books of Hadith. We're not blindly accepting everything. And so, I mean, I think Hadith actually is one of the most, if not the most, uh, critical science um, that the Muslims possess today. Now, how we can prove its objectivity, and how, I mean, those are huge questions. And really, um, there's a lot of ways we can address that, inshallah. And I think maybe we could, um, you know, have specific episodes to address, you know, this topic because it really does deserve its own um, individual episode. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Um, so when it comes to uh, hadith criticism in particular, uh, many may come to the conclusion, uh, the average Muslim, and say that um, actually, you know, many of the books of hadith, such as Bukhari and Muslims uh, compilations of hadith, you know, they are referred to as Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and so on. Uh, likewise with other books of early hadith. So when it comes to actually using these hadith, um, both from a scholarly level and both from, you know, an independent level of someone who's just a Muslim, I mean, is there even a need to actually explore the hadith as a science, uh, some would argue, uh, seen as though, you know, uh, Bukhari and Muslim came and they did the job of authenticating hadith. So is there really even a need to actually uh, explore the method of hadith? Well, I mean, um, there are several points that need to be made um, when someone, you know, asks something like this. And um, I think before I answer the question, I think we need to, first of all, look at Sayyid al-Bukhari and Muslim and actually evaluate them for what they are, right? Now, um, yes, these, the orthodox or the standard position um, among Islamic scholarship is that uh, these two books are generally, um, you know, authentic by default. Um, now the question is, what is Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim? 
Well, the reality, the reality of the matter is that these are two collections um, that were authored by two men who were really competent in hadith, right? They were masters of the field. And it's a human effort that was um, undertaken by these two men. And how do we know that they did a good job? Well, we can only know that by actually, you know, learning the rules of hadith and evaluating their works for what they are, right? Otherwise, we're just going to be blindly following something um, out of dogma. And I do not think that this was the intention uh, behind the authorship of Bukhari and Muslim, really. Um, the reason why we accepted them, you know, as Muslims, the reason why these books, out of the many different types of sahihs that exist, you know, we have other sahihs, we have sahih like Ibn Hibban, sahih Ibn Khuzayma, and others. Um, the reason why these two were, were the most popular, I mean, is this clearly is an objective reason why. And the only way we would ident identify those reasons is by actually understanding, you know, the hadith method. Um, you know, why is Bukhari's sahih superior to Jamia Tirmidhi, for you know? The only way you'd be able to answer that is by actually understanding, you know, the different rules and principles um, of hadith. And, and so this is where its relevance obviously comes, just one aspect. Um, another issue is, I mean, yeah, it's, it really comes down to dogma. I mean, people who object to, to teaching the science and just call for a blind following of something. I mean, this is, this is just dogma, and it will always be prone to failure. And, it, and there's a lot of other issues, you know, the Sahihain are being attacked today. People are undermining their reliability. And you really won't be able to, to address these uh, concerns and these doubts that are spreading if you don't understand, you know, the science and if you don't understand uh, the principles on which these books were authored. Yeah, I think that's a crucial point uh, because especially today when the likes of Bukhari and its authenticity uh, is actually being placed into question uh, by certain figures within, uh, you know, like you said, in the dogma sense. So when it actually comes to hadith, one of the aims of this project is to actually look at the methodology of hadith um, in order to sort of signify that actually, you know, like you mentioned, instead of actually just blind following and taking something for granted, like the sayings of Rasulullah and his actions, um, you're saying that essentially there is actually a way to objectively go through these books and actually authenticate them. Oh, uh, definitely. Just, you know, to, to address that follow-up question. Um, we actually can go to Sahih al-Bukhari and evaluate the report uh, al-Bukhari, you know, transmitted in Sahih. And we can essentially... Um, affirm its authenticity. You know, we can regrade it and show why Bukhari was right. You know, in declaring this report to be authentic. Um, you know, we don't we don't have to blindly follow his ijtihad, but we can support it. We can show. We can say, you know, hey, here are the reasons why Bukhari declared it to be objective, and they're pretty good reasons. Um, so, I mean, this is one of the aspects um, where you know the hadith sciences really are crucial. Okay, that's great. Um, now, Abdullah, I just wanted to uh, move up to yourself and really from this specific subject of objectively taking a hadith and authenticating it and not taking it for granted, uh, as many do today, and what has sort of um, increased in the decline amongst criticism of the Islamic sciences today. So when we refer to specific hadith, now there's a term that comes to mind 
um, actually two terms that come to mind. Uh, the first term would be something like ulum uh, al-hadith. The other one would be mustala al-hadith. Now, I mean, what is mustala al-hadith? Uh, I mean, both in definition and, I mean, would it be possible to give a very, very quick overview of what the hadith methodology in terms of the criticism and in terms of theory actually means uh, both today and historically speaking? Sure, yeah. Um, but before I go into that, I, I want to comment on something uh, before, if that's okay. Should I? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, there's there's a couple things I wanted to mention, when it comes to uh, the first issue of of you know the objectivity of the hadith method, why it should even be considered a viable uh, approach to authenticating hadith and showing that they are historical and they're not mere uh, fabrications that are you know projected on earlier authorities. Um, uh, there are several principles, and I and I went into a bit of detail in my ebook uh, in defense of hadith method uh, about this, but there are several principles um, upon which the uh, a positive case for the hadith method is made. Uh, number one, that would be actually looking at the rules and principles that are used in hadith method, and determining whether they're rational rules and principles. Um, do they make sense? Um, can they be applied objectively? Uh, number one, uh, the, the, the second uh, principle would, would be the actual integrity of the muhaddithin. Do we have reasons to believe that the major muhaddithin, the major figures of the field who both developed it uh, as well as who extensively wrote in it? And there's a difference between the two, obviously, because not everyone who developed the field in theory actually uh, wrote very much in it and was a compiler. So those folks, both who uh, developed the, the the theory as well and on on the criticism, and those who collected the ahadith, do we have reason to believe that they're honest people? Do, can we can we trust their integrity? Is their integrity intact? Uh, that's the that's the second. Um, uh, that's the second uh, principle. Then you have uh, a third principle, and there's more principles upon which base, but just, just quickly, uh, a third principle upon which, uh, you know, our positive case for uh, Hadith method is based would be um, uh, giving examples. And we can show this, that not only did they have integrity, you know, the, the those involved in the field as a whole, uh, not only are the rules and principles uh, objective and rational, but they were practiced in a way that was objective. Um, and practiced in a way that can only be explained by objectivity and, and earnest, um, um, uh, you know, want, desire to actually uh, come to a historical uh, conclusion. And not simply a conclusion that supports a person's biases or, or you know, theological or legal positions or political positions they may hold. Um, that was the first thing I wanted to comment on. Um, the second one, before I, I move on to your actual question to me. Sorry, so just, so just to clarify um, before you move on. Um, so effectively, what you're saying is that um, we can uh, objectively take the sunnah in the form of the hadith and there is actually no need for us to actually just you know take it as a given 
and we can actually uh, objectively thoroughly analyze using hadith criticism to say that this is what rasulullah said and this is you know the specific method in which it was transmitted without yep without doubt okay that's very good okay uh sorry you're saying Okay, now to move on to the second one, which is about like more specifically Al-Bukhari. And all of them are, of course, related together, all these things. Um, uh, Mushkadan brings a good point about in order to really appreciate the work that was done by Al-Bukhari or Muslim as, you know, Sahib al-Sahih, right? The, the two authors in, in Sahih uh, genre you would have to have a bit of expertise and understanding and, and background in, in hadith. However, there are simple ways that somebody who's, who's, who's you know, your, your average Muslim, you know, uh, Ahmed or Zaid on the street, your um, uh, Muslim who's a bit educated but isn't, you know, very well versed in hadith, there are ways that they would be able to, to, to kind of realize that, the Sahihan, uh, the two Sahihs of Al-Bukhari and Muslim are not just like any other book. Um, and and uh, Mushkadan alluded to, to, to some of them and, and uh, some, of these, some of these ways. But for example, Al-Bukhari and Muslim weren't the only, they weren't the only hadith writers in their day who wrote in uh, the Sahih genre. There, there, there was uh, more uh, who wrote, and th there's a specific one, his name is not coming to mind. However, it, his name is found, as, as, subhanAllah, it's not coming to mind, but his name, you can find it in the Su'alat of Al-Barda'i to Abu Zur'ah. Um, it's in the second volume. Um, and his book didn't even survive. And in his lifetime, it was, it was, it was criticized, for example. Um, now, uh, there's books that came after it, Sahih ibn Khuzayma, Sahih ibn Hibban, and they also don't have the same weight as as Bukhari and Muslim. And there's books that are written before the Sahihan, and they don't have the same weight as in Bukhari and Muslim. So this, I mean, w gives you an idea that there is something special about them. Besides the fact, besides the fact that. Um, if one wants to take their ahadith, uh, one can one can can compare. You know, uh, 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 is Al Bukhari's uh, conclusions about hadith, um, or Muslims' conclusions about hadith, their ahadith are not exclusive to them. So you can find a hadith that are in Bukhari and Muslim, and also Jami at Tirmidhi. At Tirmidhi is a scholar who's independent, right? And he sometimes disagrees with Al Bukhari. However, if you look at those same ahadith, the, the shared ahadith between them, you can see that At-Tirmidhi is grading those ahadith as authentic. You can find Abu Hatim al-Razi, Abu Zur al-Razi, Ad-Daraqutni, who came you know, after them. You, know, you can find Imam Ahmad, Yahya ibn Ma'in, who came before Al-Bukhari and Muslim, and they're also authenticating these same ahadith. So it's not simply that it's you know Bukhari and Muslim, but it's they drew from a pool of ahadith, which for the most part were unanimously accepted, and you can for each of those ahadith you can yourself go and research and see the authentications of other scholars besides Al Bukhari and Muslim. 
So that's, I mean, those are just some ways that, you know, your average Muslim, someone who's, who's slightly educated but isn't a talib alim, they can, uh, they can, uh, they can look at it and, and, and they can realize um, for themselves uh, in this, using this reasonable approach that uh, there is something special about it. Now, they may not understand everything, why it is so special, because they don't have a full hadith background, but this is a reasonable, a rational way, which a, a person who's not an expert can, can, can see that um, uh, there is something special about them. Now, to move on to your question, uh, Atsis, um, could, could you repeat it? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we hear about uh, Bukhari and Muslim, uh, the rest of the... Muhaddithin uh, of the past and the method in which they actually objectively establish the hadith and the sunnah of Rasulullah. So, I mean, this involves there of the method. Uh, that method usually comes down to you hear terms like either ulum al hadith or mustala al hadith. So, I mean, both um, with the presumption that this is the method that they used. Uh, or maybe they had differences in that method. Could you sort of just give us a brief overview of what is these terms, uh, specifically mustalah al-hadith that we hear frequently, and how is it actually used in terms of a historical perspective and a contemporary perspective uh, regarding the theory of it? Yeah, sure. So mustalah uh, al-hadith, ulum al-hadith, as terms, by the way, ulum al-hadith comes way before mustalah al-hadith. I think... Ulum um, al-Hadith uh, probably can be traced back to the 3rd century um, or 4th century uh, at the latest. And then uh, for Musal al-Hadith, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a later term that, that appeared probably in around the 8th century or 9th century uh, in obviously Islamic, uh, Islamic uh, calendar. Now, um, they're essentially referring to the same thing, which is Hadith method. The theory uh, behind the criticism of hadith and its authentication, and uh, essentially, to, to, to make it short, the the muhaddithun. So, a hadith is just a report. It's, it could be a quote, an observation made by somebody, and that somebody is transmitting it to another person. Uh, there's this, there's this, you know, personal inter interaction and transmission between these peoples of this um, account, this observation, this report. Now, um, after as the time progresses, you have this chain that grows. Now, as the chain grows, the the uh, the possibility of the occurrence of mistakes increases. Um, and uh, so on and so forth. This necessitates the creation of a sort of method or the development of a method um, uh, of a method that, that, that one can use to critically analyze hadith. And that's what the muhadithun did. They took certain principles that are rational in and of themselves. I don't want to call it logic, you know, but they, they took principles that are rational, they're reasonable, and then they applied them to the hadith based on uh, understanding the nature of transmission as well as the individual practices of those transmitters. And once, we, once you apply that to the hadith, 
you're able to get a good understanding of of what is authentic and what is not authentic. And that's the whole point of hadith method. Um, and, and what I mean by that, for example, is uh, the nature of hadith transmission is that hadith are many times paraphrased, for example. Okay? So part of understanding the nature of hadith is to understand that they're paraphrased. And some people transmit it according to their own perspective. Now, um, when it comes to authentication, this isn't simply a blanket rule, but it's something that a, 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 a critic would look into. And he realizes that also due to the nature of, of, of hadith transmission, certain genres over hadith uh, are more prone to paraphrasing than other genres. So for example, du'a, uh, they're less prone to paraphrasing than, say, for example, a hadith of observations about the Prophet uh, and whatnot. So this is a, uh, a, a uh, this observation that the muhadithun make, that people par paraphrase a hadith, and then all the related um, ideas behind that is comes from their na understanding of the nature of hadith transmission. Um, and then they, they apply certain logical principles uh, about, for example, how a hadith can be corrupted. Uh, since it's, it's, we have, we have uh, human intera interaction, human transmission, the, there's two ways that essentially a hadith report can be corrupted. Um, and that is either by malicious uh, tampering or simple human error. Right? Uh, and so, I mean, so, so based on these, these rational principles, understanding this, they, 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 they apply uh, these rational principles to the uh, hadith at hand based on their understanding of the nature of hadith transmission and the, uh, and the individual uh, practices of each of those transmitters. And they can come out with a, a solid, a, a sound uh, judgment on the authenticity of a hadith. Wallahu alam. Interesting. So, given that, how how does did how does hadith science sciences affect the average Muslim who is a muqallid who you know obviously does not have expertise either in hadith sciences is not a talib in how does the establishment of hadith sciences and their uh, continued maintenance serve to help them in their religion? I got you. Um, yeah. Okay, so. Hadith is, is relevant to the average Muslim in a variety of ways. Now, you brought up, you know, the, the point on taqlid, which is the fact that most Muslims um, are essentially following um, some form of scholarship, um, you know, when it comes to fiqh and jurisprudence and whatnot. And obviously, um, you know, if you refer to, you know, fiqh books or, juris, you know, books of jurisprudence, you'll find that you have, you know, specific rulings and some differences, you know, across the different madahib. And often, I mean, these differences are based on different reports. And if you refer to the earlier books of film, you know, like a Shafi's books um, and, you know, books of those genres, you will find them debating, you know, sometimes the authenticity of the reports cited by the opposing madahib, right? And so um, this is one aspect that will clearly, you know, um, you know, affect most Muslims today, right? The reason why you, you know, practice, for example, behavior X, Y, Z in Salah 
simply is because there is an authentic hadith transmitted back to the Prophet or back to a companion of the Prophet you know, or some earlier authority, you know, where they practiced it. Um, and that is why, you know, this madhab chose to do that. Um, and same thing goes for the differences across the madhab, right? So one madhab may uphold a certain practice or a certain ritual, not a, not a ritual, but a practice or a habit. And other madhab may refrain, you know, often simply due to the authenticity of the report on it, right? So these are, you know, examples um, where a Muslim will be directly influenced. And you see, you know, this manifest in wudu, in certain things in salah, you know, for example, raising your hands when you're praying, um, when for the right? When you say Allahu Akbar, some people, some madhab, they'll raise their hands and then maybe ahnaf and others, they don't, right? Often a lot of these debates... And a lot of these differences really come down to, to individual reports uh, that exist in the hadith corpus. So this is one aspect, um, you know, where the average Muslim is, is directly influenced uh, by hadith gradients. Now, there's another aspect. I mean, there's, I think there are several other aspects. Um, some are more complicated than the others. Um, and so, for example, Muslims obviously... Um, do have some form of connection to the Prophet ﷺ, right? Um, because it's not limited to fiqh. I mean, people read a hadith on the raqa'iq, on the seerah of the Prophet. They read a hadith, you know, on the Prophet's virtues, on his behavior, on his characteristics. You know, they, they try to emulate that, right? And so um, we want that to be based on, you know, reports that can be reliably traced back to the Prophet, right? We don't want to be um, do something... Um, wrongly thinking that we are following the Prophet while we're not. So this is one aspect as well where, where the average Muslim is obviously directly um, by the Hadith method and its implications when it's implemented. Now, another aspect, I think this is actually one of the, the major um, aspects where the average Muslim is influenced by the Hadith method is, is you know, the preservation of Islam as a whole. Because the reality of the matter is that um, hadith really does uh, or has preserved the essence of Islam. Um, you know, if you, if you take hadith out of the picture and you essentially limit Islam to the Quran, um, you will not have much, you know, when it comes to daily practices, when it comes to rituals, when it comes to even, you know, stuff in the Quran. There are stuff that are not, that are, that are left ambiguous in the Quran. And so hadith really has preserved the religion of Islam as a whole. And not just religion of Islam, it's preserved, you know, the Prophet's actions, the Prophet's behaviors, the opinions of the Sahaba, the opinions of the Tabi'een. It's an entire tradition um, that has been, you know, preserved uh, thanks to this method, uh, the Hadith method. And this will continue to influence not only Muslims, but non-Muslims as well, you know, all around the world. Because this religion or this body of reports really does manifest in every single uh, shape or form. Um, in the Muslims, you know, everyday life. And so, I mean, there's a lot of other ways as well, you know, how Muslims directly affected. But it clearly is, you know, a really important science that should not, should not be neglected. Let me, let me jump in there um, on, on that question as well. It's, it's a good question. I have two comments on it, though. Um, f first of all, it's, it's a good question about, you know, the muqallid and how how hadith affects the muqallid. And I want to challenge the assumption behind the question because uh, especially now, um, uh, you know, in the past, there was a lack of information 
um, uh, amongst people. And there was this clear lines that were drawn. You know, you have you have alim, or at least in theory, there was clear lines that were drawn. You have the alim, you have talib alim. Um, you know, you have your layman who almost knows nothing. He just knows his practices that he needs to of salah. He probably does not know any of the adilla behind it. This situation um, or scenario may be found today among certain people and with greater frequency in, in certain areas. However, being that we, I mean, as Muslims who live in the West, especially those who live in the West, and even now, even in, 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 in not in the West, in the East, in the Middle East, um, there is an influx of information, an overflow of information um, about religion and hadith that everyone has access to. So people, muqallidun, um, people who themselves are not mushtahidun and they don't want to be, but they're just interested in understanding a reasoning behind something, they have access to adilla now. And they get questions. They have access to a hadith which they don't understand and perhaps cause them, you know, shubuhat and uh, misunderstandings in religion and could negatively in, uh, uh, influence or affect their iman. Um, this did not was not as common previously, um, and 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 sometimes these types of questions. The assumption is that we're living in the same era and we're not. So. Uh, these the, these distinctions between muqallid and 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 not a muqallid between a an a, a regular Muslim and educated Muslim and a talib alim and the alim they're getting very blurred. Um, and uh, as a result, hadith is very significant for them, whether it's because they they want to understand some adilla or they, and 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 the most important is probably about shubuhat uh, and and mis misunderstandings or misrepresentations of religion that come as a result of a hadith especially weak hadith so in in that way it's extremely relevant especially now for someone who who technically previously in the past centuries would be referred to as quote unquote a muqallid um uh, the second point was is 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 a is a spinoff of what uh, Mushkadana mentioned towards towards the end. Um, uh, and um, the the you know you know you know you have Muslims. It, it, uh, there's a hadith on raqaiq, you know, heart softeners that people read and everything. It's not just limited to fiqh, and um, there's certain hadith that, that people can read and they'll get a bad bad understanding uh, of it. Um, I mean, for example, your, your common Muslim reads a book like Al Salihin, which is an excellent book. And he reads a, a hadith in it that says, for example, um, you know, uh, a man will not be asked or should not be asked. Um, uh, about why he has uh, beaten his wife or uh, hit his wife. Now, obviously, when Noah we put it in the al Salihin, he's not meaning the apparent meaning of the hadith. You know, uh, it's clear that he, he intends that people shouldn't be nosy. That's, what's, that's the um, context in which he put it. But a common person 
when they read that, and Riyadh Salihin is a book that everyone has access to, they might get very confused about it. And the hadith is weak anyways, and the apparent meaning of it is false. Now, people that mention this hadith, they don't themselves support the false apparent meaning of it. But the fact that they put it there, and it is weak, and its apparent meaning is quite strange to, uh, to, to, to Muslims, um, uh, would be a cause of doubt. Now, uh, now, uh, the, as another like facet to this question, which or the the issue about Mushkadana, he, he brought up about how Hadith presents a clear, uh, you know, a, a full narrative of Islam. If you were just left with the Quran, we would really not have much. He makes a good point because among some people who are not really enthusiastic or as enthusiastic as us about Hadith. There's this idea that, you know, hadith is where all the strict rulings are. And, you know, hadith is, is this, this, this um, uh, where all, all, all the rulings and everything hard. If we just had Qur'an, our lives would be so much easier. And this is very far from the truth. There's so many places where um, if, if one were to take simply an apparent reading of the Qur'an, or a, a reading which, of course, Allah does not intend, they would come up with something that is incorrect, or they would lack restrictions. And it is the hadith and the practices, the guidance of the Prophet, which clarifies that. An example, um, when it comes to the issue of, of disciplining uh, one's spouse, the Qur'an leaves it quite open. It's only in the hadith that we see regulations about it. Number one, where the general guidance of the Prophet that he did not use to hit his wife, his wives. Um, number two, specific ahadith uh, prohibiting, uh, you know, uh, the 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 um, disciplining, for example, to leave bruises, this and that, whatever. And then a third ahadith where the Prophet essentially ridicules those people who practice it. Where in the Shan Sahih al Bukhari and other books, where he says, um, essentially, what makes one of you beat his wife like an animal, then he goes sleeps with her at the end of the night or at the, at the end of the day. So um, people have this wrong idea that, you know, Quran is so easy and Hadith comes in and it's hard and, it's, and it has all these hard rulings on us. And it's just not true. Uh, this, the same the same applies to uh, I mean so many rulings where uh, one must take the Quran and Hadith together in order to get a balanced view the the view that uh, a narrative that Allah Azza wa Jal intended uh, the Muslims to have. Wallahu ta'ala ala. So Mushadana, um, I know you briefly touched on you know the issue of taqlid, blind following. Um, along with the role of a layman when it comes to hadith, so on and so forth. Now, one of the issues that comes within today's society, um, one that I've particularly seen in places on social media, like Twitter and so on, where there are hadith that have been posted uh, and they're actually being tweeted as reminders, as you know, beneficial reminders uh, that are sort of, allow the Muslims to actually see the example of Rasulullah through his speech and through his actions and actually use that to follow. Now, many of the times, people like yourselves that are actually researchers within hadith 
they have the ability to actually go through the hadith and identify something that's weak or something that's actually quite authentic. So when it comes to many of these hadith, especially those which a lot of the cultures within Muslim societies, they are built on weak and fabricated hadith, it tends to have a very detrimental impact on the average Muslim when they realize that actually this hadith that I've been brought up with all my life or this hadith which actually allows me to sort of form a direction to follow the sunnah is actually based upon a weak or a fabricated hadith that doesn't even have a basis in the sunnah. So this comes down to really two questions. The first being that in your experience and your research of historically, uh, historically speaking, how the hadith methodology developed, what do you think one of the reasons are as to why uh, so much of Muslim culture today is built upon weak and fabricated tradition? And thereafter, I mean, where does the Muslim go from there? And just before you begin answering the question, I just wanted to point out to the audience that these topics are being covered at a very surface level and i mean the objective of this episode is just really to give a brief introduction into what actually hadith is and some of the key issues pertaining hadith today um and just to ensure that we will be covering each of these topics individually in a lot more detail in a lot more depth uh very very soon inshallah um so over to you mishkadana mashallah it's a really good question now, you know, before we delve into the, to the answer to that question, um, we need to, you know, essentially give, you know, a brief intro to the context, you know, of, of his, you know, the historical, historical context of hadith and, and the transmission of hadith. Now, when we, when we want to understand, you know, why certain behaviors are prevalent or why certain behaviors, um, you know, become popular in certain areas, what well, we have to first understand that um, the Prophet wasallam you know, to most Muslim societies, if not all of them, of course, all of them, is as an authority, right? And what that essentially means is that if someone wants to essentially circulate um, a certain behavior or make it popular or justify it or anchor it, you know, or, or give it some, some basis, some religious basis, um, you know, one of the easy ways to do that is to just ascribe it to the Prophet, right? Because everyone believes that the Prophet is an authority. So there's a motive for many. And so, I mean, this is one aspect where, you know, if you want to promote an idea or promote a practice or a culture, you know, a practice that is maybe appealing to a certain culture, you can simply ascribe it to the Prophet, right? And it will become popular. And um, the only way we'd actually be able to verify the authenticity of that is through hadith. Um, so, you know, a good example since. A good example of this, since we started talking about women, and Abdullah brought some examples, you know, uh, you know, from the Sunnah uh, pertaining to to the role of women in, in Islam and whatnot. Um, we actually have a bunch of examples where a bunch of very weak and sometimes forged ahadith have essentially, um, you know, deeply influenced, you know, the way Muslims treat women in certain societies. Right? You have certain, you know, fabricated ahadith. You know, let's say, for example, a woman has no place. Aside from um, her home or her husband's home and then to the grave, you know, there's something weird like that. And it's fabricated. It's not even authentic. It's not even yani, in any of the official books. Um, and this stuff gets circulated, unfortunately, in, in a lot of our cultures. Um, you have this famous hadith, um, which, which states that 
which quotes the Prophet essentially saying, uh, the most displeased or the most uh, despised of halal um, to Allah is divorce. Right? And this hadith is often cited uh, to essentially force women uh, to stay in abusive relationships, right? Because they're telling them, hey, you're going to do the worst of halal in the eyes of Allah. You know, and the reality of the matter is that it's just weak. Um, Abu Hatim al-Razi, for example, stated that it's disconnected. There's like a hundred year gap um, in the isnad of this hadith from the tabi who transmits it to the Prophet. Um, I mean, so there are a bunch of examples. And, you know, for ex if you look at the Quran in this aspect, I mean, talaq is halal. And talaq is actually a form of mercy from Allah, divorce, right? Because you have two, two people and they realize that they're not compatible. If you force them to stay with each other, you know, it's going to lead to more issues. And so this is an example of a weak hadith that is very popular, at least in my culture. You know, they will cite this report to keep women in relationships, you know, when they want to leave and they desperately need to leave. There are a lot of different manifestations, you know, for, I mean, you have weak hadith and aqidah, you know, you have certain beliefs that essentially leach into Islam. Because, you know, Muslim societies are interacting with different people, different cultures, different religions, different, different ideas. And, you know, there are a lot of motives and reasons uh, why people would want to ascribe things to the Prophet, falsely ascribe them uh, to the Prophet. And hadith, of course, is here, the hadith method is here to ensure that the Muslims do not believe or falsely believe that something is authentic to the Prophet ﷺ because we can actually um, objectively verify all of these reports. And you know, again, there, there's a lot more to say on this topic, but uh, I, I think that should do for now, inshallah. So I've heard this term floated around called takhrij, which from my understanding means, and correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the science of actually digging into a hadith and determining, it, determining its authenticity. But given that it is 2019, why is this still being done? I mean, wouldn't, couldn't we say that all these questions have since been answered and, you know, it's rather cut and dry and all the work's been done? Uh, why, why is takhrij still important? Uh, Abdullah. This is actually a great question. <clears throat> so first of all, what takhrij is is the the process of uh, first firstly collecting all the relevant hadith data on a specific hadith or set of a hadith that we want to um study and um then analyzing it in order to come out to the conclusion whether it's historical or not whether it's authentic or not and that means, I mean, when we say all the relevant hadith data, we mean collecting all the chains, all the uh, uh, variations in the texts uh, of those reports. It means uh, getting all the details, the biographical details that are found on the transmitters and any other relevant information, um, historical information that surrounds it. So it's to compile all that and then analyze it. After you analyze it, you can come out with the conclusion whether it's authentic or not, whether it represents a historical reality that actually occurred, or it's simply a figment of uh, someone's imagination, for example. Now, um, some people, including myself, you, you know, many years ago when I first was introduced to Hadith, uh, I think to myself, well, 
you know, we've been around for 14 centuries as Muslims, you would think that there's literally nothing to do. But um, there is a lot to do. And, and uh, Tahrir still plays a very integral role. And that is because, number one, there's many a hadith which the early hadith critics never actually graded. Um, uh, sometimes a hadith that, that are in their own hadith anthologies and collections that we have, they actually never graded it. Their only intention was, we're just compiling everything at the moment and we're not going to necessarily, necessarily grade it. Then we have other examples where there's a hadith which appeared in hadith books and hadith compilations after the time of the early hadith critics in the uh, uh, you know late uh, you know you know the, the fourth and then fifth centuries. These are hadith that, that that came into circulation, which are actually not necessarily historical. So naturally, because they're not historical and they appeared later. There's no gradings on them, I and mean, then uh, somebody who's not very familiar hadith uh, um, will come and, and think it's maybe authentic. So there needs to be a grading and a study of these hadiths to decide and, and to show whether these are historical or, or not, whether they're authentic or not. Um, then you also have the issue of uh, a hadith that they graded, and we want to be confident as either lay Muslims, as educated Muslims, as tulab ilm, as researchers, as scholars, as whatever. We want to be more certain um, of the method that they're using. We want to be, uh, you know, be more comfortable and more confident in the, that, that the Prophet actually said it. So we would want to engage in tahrij. Uh, in our own independent research, just to simply verify the results of those who came before us. And there's nothing wrong with it. And when you do it, you will simply become more confident in the methods of Al-Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Hatim, Al-Daraqutni, Al-Nasai, and others. So those are, I think, those are the main usages of, of Takhrij nowadays. Um, and why it still remains relevant. Wallahu alam. So speaking of old figures still being important. I've heard the names Ibn Hajar and Al-Albani mentioned with regards to Hadith. Who are these figures and, and are they still important today? Wushkadana, you can take that. So, obviously in Hadith, um, you know, we have a lot of authorities, a lot of different figures um, that, had, that had an essential role in the development of the method and its implementation, right? And, you know, it really starts with the, some of the tabi'in. You know, some of the key um, principles we have in hadith really can be dated back to that era. And, so we, and then we have the hadith critics from the 3rd century, 4th century, 2nd century. Um, and, you know, continue to develop. And then you had, you know, essentially later on in history, you had certain figures who um, practiced this method and perfected it. And they were competent in it, you know, later scholars that came after the era of the early hadith critics. And I mean, I think one of the good examples is uh, Shaykh al-Islam, um, Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah. Now, Ibn Hajar is a, an 8th century figure. He was born in the 8th century um, in the city of Asqalan, which is in current-day Palestine. 
And he is essentially a really competent muhaddith. And, and there are several reasons why um, he's pretty popular today. Um, one of them, obviously, is he has a great degree of competence um, in his hadith, in his gradings, and in his analysis. He has some of the best primers in hadith, like Nukhbat al-Fikr, and other works, Nuzhat al-Nadar. They're really good books, you know, that you know, briefly explain the hadith method to the beginner, beginner students. So anyone who's a beginner in hadith will usually um, be familiar with, you know, some of Ibn Hajar's works. So that's one of the reasons why he's very popular. Um, now, another, I think, one of, the, one of the other major reasons is that he was a very prolific author. So he had a lot of different works that are really relevant. So one of his most famous books is his great commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari that is known as uh, Fath al-Bari, right? He essentially um, explained and analyzed and contextualized each hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. So it's like more than 7,000 reports. Um, and it's, it really is impressive, you know? Um, and so similarly, I mean, Ibn Hajar, he was pretty popular during his era. He official posts within the government. I think he was a judge as well. And, and there are a lot of factors uh, that led to his popularity um, in Muslim circles. And his works are really good. And, you know, I recommend them to anyone. Um, who's interested in, in learning about hadith. Now, personally, for example, when I wanna, want to you know, get the explanation of a certain hadith, something I don't understand in Bukhari or something else, I refer to Ibn Hajar's Fath al You know, it's that good. It's, it's a really good and well-authored uh, work. Now, regarding uh, Sheikh al-Albani, um, so I'm not actually that familiar with his works, believe it or not. I didn't get the chance to to go through it. I've been really busy with the early critics. But Sheikh al-Albani, rahimahullah, I mean, he has a really nice life story. He's essentially an Albanian refugee who came from Albania uh, and first settled in Syria. And he started off as a Hanafi, like most, uh, you know, Albanians and Syrians and Turks. I mean, most people in the area were Hanafis. And he started off as a Hanafi, and his dad wanted to say Hanafi fiqh. And then he developed an interest in hadith. And something that happens when you learn hadith, and, and you know, if you ever decide to learn hadith, you'll experience this, inshallah, is you start to become a little more independent. You stop being attached to individual madahib or individual opinions. You're much more open to accepting new positions because now you know the evidence, right? And you can evaluate the evidence itself and the merit of an argument. And so Shaykh al-Albani, essentially... Um, had some issues with his father in that aspect. He wanted to pursue Hanafi fiqh and he wasn't interested. And Sheikh Albani was in Damascus. He had the uh, privilege or luxury of having access to Al Maktab al Zahiriya in Damascus, which is a very, very um, valuable and priceless a library that has tons of manuscripts, you know, of books that maybe haven't been printed until this day, or, you know, they weren't printed during Sheikh Albani's life. And he essentially went through the whole library, right? Every single book. And you see this in his works. So again, like Ibn Hajar, you know, there's a variety of reasons why Sheikh Albani is popular today. Um, one of them is, is his competence to a certain extent. Um, if you read his takhrij, um, you know, his, his ability to essentially list you know, vast amounts of resources when he's doing takhrij. You know, he'll get to works that are, you've never heard of. right? He'll mention a chain of transmission from a book that you've never heard of. You know, it's not good. Um, you know, sometimes I'm doing takhrij and I have a 
programs that help me, you know, find different words in the books. I have search engines. I have all these tools, you know, today that help me um, when I'm analyzing these reports that Sheikh Al-Albani didn't have. Yet, sometimes when I actually, you know, finish the takhrij of a report, the analysis of a report, and then I compare my results to Sheikh Al-Albani, rahimahullah, you know, I'm often, you know, surprised to find that he found a bunch of different, you know, routes for this hadith that I had not been able to find with a computer, right? So he has a very high degree of confidence, in, you know, going through the resources and, and finding relevant information pertaining to the report. Now, one of the other reasons, again, why he's very popular is because he was a prolific author. So he authored a sister al-Sahiha, you know, essentially a compilation of authentic reports. He authored a sister al-Daifa wal-Mabu'a, which I think is one of his best works which is a compilation of weak and fabricated reports. And then he also addresses some of their, he occasionally addresses some of their harmful influences, you know, on different Muslim societies. Um, and I mean, he came at a time when hadith was not very popular in Muslim circles. Uh, the hadith sciences historically have been um, neglected, you know, for several centuries, maybe since the... 7th century, 6th century is, is when it really began to decline and you have individual figures that randomly popped up, you know, that essentially revived the science at certain points. But it really was one of the eras where hadith was, was pretty neglected and Sheikh Albani really started a movement. Now, obviously, I don't agree with him in, in everything, right? Because um, the field has developed after him. You know, we, we know things that he didn't know, you know, during his time. Um... But he really did start this movement, at least in the Arab world. Um, and he essentially revived the science of hadith and the criticism of hadith, you know, on a much larger scale. So I think that's, that's Sheikh Albani in a nutshell, rahimahullah ta'ala. So if you were to take somebody like me, who is not very well versed at all in hadith sciences, and is not a Taliban, how would I even start uh, down this path that you and Abdullah have gone down? Well, um, as, I, as I say, whenever anyone asks me this question, um, the advice or the, the um, suggestions will vary depending on the person and his context, right? So it depends. I mean, if someone is competent in Arabic and has, you know, a good understanding of, of fusha, um, I'll usually recommend, you know, certain texts the person, you know, should study. Um, and I can list them out. So usually what I recommend personally, I think uh, the student can start by memorizing Al-Bayquniyyah, which is a small, concise, 34-verse uh, poem um, with some of the major uh, you know, term terms that are used in hadith. It gives you, you know, just a very brief understanding of certain concepts. I think it's useful. So you start by memorizing you know, these terms, and then you know, usually recommend um, going through a commentary on Al-Bayquniyyah, an explanation of it. Sheikh Ali Al-Halabi has a good commentary. And then you have Nukhbat Al-Fikr by Ibn Hajar as the next step. And I mean, there's a whole curriculum and uh, Abdullah has a pretty good thread on Twitter, um, you know, outlining, uh, you know, some keywords. Now, this is if there's an Arabic speaker, right? This is what I would recommend. Now, an English speaker, um, again, I'd recommend Abdullah's um, thread on Twitter where he mentions, you know, a bunch of these different sources in English. And again, um, the advice will vary depending on, on the person's context. So what do you want to get out of hadith? Do you want to become an expert, a specialist? Do you want to become a researcher? Or do you just want to develop a general understanding? You know of the science and you want to know how it works and, and you want to keep it at that so I, yeah there is no one uh, bit of advice that will fit all scenarios so 
Let me ask you this then. What do you think are some of the top issues facing the field of Hadith studies today? Wow, okay, so this is a really good question and, and there's so many ways to address it. Well, I mean, there is there are several avenues where you know we face a lot of issues. One is um, you know external the external debate that is happening you know between Islam and, and other religions and other uh, movements. So you have, for example, the Orientalists, for example, who undermine you know the entire methodology behind Hadith the reliability of our sources, right? And it's not just Orientalists. You have different, you know, um, discourses where, where this, you know, this point is brought up. You have people that are attempting to essentially negate everything we have. And so this is one of the problems we're addressing. Um, we're in a good situation. You know, we, we don't have to, you know, work that hard. Alhamdulillah, pretty objective. And it's not hard to defend hadith because it's, it's just accurate, it's reliable, and it's not based on any leaps in, in faith and whatnot. And there's no you know, faulty logic. So it's not hard to defend hadith in that aspect. But this is one of the um, you know, aspects where hadith um, really does face a lot of problems. People essentially dismissing the entire discipline. This is one thing. Now, another scope um, of discourse where hadith uh, faces some problems is the inter-Islamic discourse. You know, the way hadith is taught, the way hadith is dealt with, you know, across different schools or different institutions. Um, there, there are, you know, increasing debates, uh, you know, happening right now, you know, on, on certain things in hadith that are simply um, not in accordance to the hadith method as outlined by the muhaddithin. You know, certain schools, certain institutions, the way they teach hadith is just flawed. And um, it's based on a faulty understanding of the methodology of the muhaddithin. And sometimes it, it's, it's not even based on the methodology of the muhaddithin. They acknowledge that they are against it and they, they, you know, they, they have no issue with that. So there's an inter-Islamic um, you know, aspect to it. Um, we have you know, prevalent um, misapplications of the method of the muhaddithin, misunderstandings. And uh, so this is another issue. You know, we're trying to rectify um, you know, people's understanding. Um, certain institutions have this issue more, this issue more than others. You know. And there's a lot to say, and I think this is one of the topics that really deserves um, you know, a whole episode. We'll put that together, inshallah. So uh, I, just, uh, just uh, sorry, just, sorry to jump in. Uh, just a very quick question, uh, Mushkabana. I mean, uh, I remember once, um, this was a Twitter experience, right? where there was this hadith that was going around uh, regarding something that's attributed to Rasulullah which states that he said that Jannah, paradise, is under the feet of the mother. And I remember this, uh, this huge situation that blew out of proportion uh, when you actually went in and actually commented on the authenticity of the hadith. Could you just sort of give the audience uh, your experience in what the outcome of that was, uh, how it came about, and just your experiences of actually applying your research in hadith sciences and seeing the outcome of it. Uh, yeah, okay, cool. So this question actually directly relates to my, my previous point, which is you have sometimes a prevalent uh, misunderstanding or misapplication of the hadith method and, you know, how does that manifest? 
Well, you have a bunch of weak reports that these people think are authentic based on their watered-down approach to hadith uh, that is upheld by certain Islamic institutions today, unfortunately. Okay. So you'll find them authenticating reports, and when you actually analyze their essay, according to the methodology of the early muhadithin, the early critics, um, you'll realize that they're weak. Right? And this results in a reaction um, these people have. You know, and it will vary depending on the person, of course. And some of them, they feel attacked for some reason. You know, their dogma, they, they feel that um, you're essentially undermining their religion and they feel threatened when you weaken a report that simply is weak. And so, I mean, I have a lot of experiences on Twitter. So, <laughs> to be honest, I don't know to what you're exactly referring because I've, I've had a lot of love on that website. Um, but I do remember weakening the hadith, Al-Jannah al ummahat It's pretty weak. And there's another similar report that also has weakness, which is, uh, you know, similarly worded, where it says, you know, search for your mother's foot, for therein lies Jannah. Um, and, I mean, the meaning isn't necessarily wrong, but the hadith simply is weak. You know, you cannot ascribe this to the Prophet, um, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And like so, for a lot of other nice things. You know, we, we Muslims, we have a lot of nice things that are sometimes said in weak reports or fabricated reports as well. Um, now, the fact that they sound nice and, and they have good meanings does yeah. not justify, you know, your ascription of this, this saying to the Prophet if you have no reason to. You know, Allah But maybe if you could, you know, clarify what exactly happened because yeah. I don't exactly remember. So I remember, I remember, so when that situation took place, you had this outburst of uh, individuals that sort of say that um, on what basis can you actually grade this hadith when you are not, you know, to the rank of who they would consider a muhaddith or they would turn around and say that, uh, um, are you a scholar that you can turn around and say that we can't use this hadith because it's not sahih and spread it in the way that we can. So, I mean, what would be the response to individuals that do make this statement that who are you to sort of, you know, come out and say that this hadith is weak when the, some of the scholars are saying that it's sahih? Wallahi, ya akhi, this thing is, unfortunately, this is a problem we have um, in our Islamic discourse. And I think we really should dedicate, you know, an entire episode, even more than one, for this phenomenon, which is the prevalence of logical fallacies. Yeah. Um, that are upheld by a lot of these institutions. So this entire argument you presented is called an appeal to authority. Yeah. Right. You cite a name and you think that you just made your case. Or you undermine someone's uh, credentials and you attempt to, you know, dismiss their argument. That's called an ad hominem. Now, the argument speaks for itself, right? Look at the content. Don't, don't look at me, you know? You're asking me who am I? That's irrelevant to the point I'm making. If I'm making a valid argument, based on, you know, valid citations from reliable texts, then, I mean, you have no reason to dismiss it, right? Regardless of whoever I am. And if I'm making a bad argument that is based on a flawed understanding of text and faulty logic, then you cannot accept it, you know, again, regardless of who I am, even if I'm Sheikh al-Islam. So, I mean, this is one issue, unfortunately, where, um, you know, we experience the prevalence of certain logical fallacies in the discourse. And inshallah, I mean, we can, we can you know, take part in addressing this issue and maybe helping, you know, helping, and helping solving it, inshallah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that was a really, really crucial point that you made with regards to the appeal to authority and really the dynamics of how sort of Islam and the Islamic sciences specifically have been perceived today. And yeah, definitely, uh, we will have lots of episodes that are dedicated to issues like the appeal to authority, issues like why there is a need for hadith criticism today, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, I just wanted to conclude uh, with a very, very, you know, controversial question. And that is women in hadith, both from an application perspective uh, and both from, you know, a transmission perspective. Now, I know that uh, both Abdullah and Shkadana, you're both working on projects which actually focus on both of these subjects in depth. Um, especially relating to contemporary works that have been submitted, like Al-Muhaddithat, uh, along with uh, contemporary issues that are faced with, uh, for example, women going to the masajid. Now, uh, if possible, Abdullah, um, could you just give sort of an introduction just to the role of women in hadith, both from an application perspective and from a transmission perspective? Um, is there room for change within that limelight, firstly. Uh, and secondly, I mean, why is it so crucial for us to address this problem of women in hadith today? This is an excellent question. Um, so why is it crucial? Um, see, to, to be frank, for, for, for two reasons. Number one, and, and just to be very frank here, women have been mistreated throughout history. That is a fact that no one can deny. And many times their mistreatment happens under the guise of religion. And, and uh, women's, you know, progress in different ways, shapes, and forms have been stunted using uh, false hadith narrative. A hadith that were never considered authentic by the earlier hadith critics that uh, are not accepted by Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Hatim and others. Um, so, so it's important for that for that reason because frankly you have to right the wrong. And secondly, because due to this issue, Islam is now being blamed when Islam and the authentic Sunnah is in reality not to blame for this. This is the problem of different cultural influences on Muslims during those times when those writers were uh, authoring, and not because of the religion they follow or because, uh, uh, you know, the justifications they attempted to use or misuse in promoting certain behaviors that were uh, anti-woman, for example. So it's important for that reason. Um, now, this issue, because of why it's so important, people have written uh, in, in many different ways about these two, two issues. So, so let's take the issue of women, women's contributions to hadith first. So because there's so many attacks... In, in, in desperate attempts to show that, oh, we're like everyone else, don't attack us, women did participate in hadith, we have fallacious 
uh, you know, points in our hadith discourse where um, you have books on muhaddithat, quote-unquote women scholars of hadith. And the problem is it's not very intellectually honest. Um, and what happens is you have the authors of these books, they will quote women hadith transmitters, the majority of which uh, of whom came after the end of the era of hadith transmission. And then they present it to people and say, look, see, Muslims throughout history have incorporated women in their studies. Do not criticize us, please. And this is an issue. Because, number one, the majority of those they mention, their contributions, quote-unquote, are inconsequential and immaterial because they came after the era of hadith transmission. And number two, none of them are scholars of the hadith in a meaningful sense of the word. Now somebody, people who write the book, they will criticize me and what they will say is that, well, um, uh, muhadith can be used to mean a hadith transmitter. That's correct. It can be used to mean that. However, it is deceptive because that is not what people think. People think of someone like Ibn Hajar. People think of Al-Bukhari when they hear muhadith. They, they think of a hadith critic, someone who has amassed thousands and thousands of hadith transmission, and he knows the biography of the transmitters, he knows the hidden defects in a hadith, he can grade and analyze a hadith. None of the women presented in any of these works had these capabilities. So why do we con uh, you know, continue stating and claiming fallaciously that w throughout the ages of, 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 of you know, Islamic civilization, we have had so many women scholars of hadith. And in short, it's wrong because, number one, the majority of those that they quote, their contributions, quote-unquote, are immaterial because they came after the era of hadith transmission, in addition to the fact that all of them, or rather we can say none of them, were actually hadith scholars, muhaddithat, in the sense that people understand it today. Now, this is important for us to clarify, not because we're anti-woman and we want to you know, hide and we're all secret misogynists, but because when an enemy of Islam who has half a brain, he sees the obvious holes in such a narrative, he can point it out, and this will cause doubts for people. We have to present a narrative on women hadith contributions uh, that is sound, that's in accordance with the reality of the situation. And um, so, in, in my opinion, that the, 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 the women contributions in hadith um, uh, focus on on uh, number one, the transmission of hadith in the first uh, century and a half of Islam. And they transmitted very important ahadith. Their ahadith were, uh, you know, looked at just like any other uh, man's hadith that was reliable. Those that are reliable from the women transmitters are reliable just as the men are reliable. And those that are not reliable from the women transmitters are not reliable just as the men transmitters were not reliable. Uh, 
some of them transmitted mundane ahadith, like men, many men transmitted mundane ahadith. Some of these women transmitted very important ahadith upon which many laws are built and many uh, and opinions established. Just like many men uh, transmitted, uh, uh, you know, ahadith upon which many laws and opinions were established. Um, their ahadith were not considered differently because they were women. So in that sense, and just to give a story, for example, you have Amr bint Abdurrahman, who is a, a main student of Aisha, radiyallahu anha. Um, uh, a whole court case was decided based on her hadith. The, uh, the, the governor, I guess, of Medina, or the one who was in charge, the judge, uh, he was brought a, a thief. And... Um, Amra stopped him from even proceeding in the judgment. And she said, do not do anything until I come to you or I, I present to you what the Prophet has said about this issue. And she, and she transmitted to him that the Prophet, uh, you know, the Prophet's guidance on the issue of, of, of the amount necessary uh, for the uh, punishment to be uh, carried out, uh, which is, I think, a quarter of a, of a dinar. And she transmitted the hadith him, and then the 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 ummah acted upon this hadith. So their contributions to that they transmitted a hadith like the majority of men. And uh, they uh, their their hadith were taken seriously, just like uh, you know the hadith of men were taken seriously. Um, uh, as a side point, uh, and and I don't want to to you know actually I'll I'll, I'll save that for the other part of the question. Um, women, for example, in their one of some of their contributions is that they transmitted biographical data, and these this biographical data is, I mean, this part of female contribution to hadith is overlooked. Biographical data is very important. Important. It is the, uh, yani it's the facts upon which the whole science of jarh al-tadil is based. So that's a very uh, you know impactful contribution to hadith. Um, you, uh, also, um, you have some scenarios. Where, I mean, muhaddithun, they're they're they are and and transmitters of hadith. They're susceptible, you know, to old age. I mean, they're not, you know, if they if they fall old, they be, they can become senile. And one of their contributions, uh, albeit in a in a more indirect manner, but it's a contribution nonetheless, is that. They would notice their father or their husband. He was starting to become senile or changing his, losing his memory. They would prevent him from transmitting hadith after that. Now, some people would like to belittle this. This should not be belittled, because someone who understands science of hadith will realize that there is a huge impact. Had these women, these wives or daughters, not stopped their fathers and husbands respectively from transmitting hadith in their senile state, this would have led to, number one, uh, their hadith being questioned and uh, at least be treated suspiciously, if not that very rejected, number one. Number two, it would lead to uh, the criticisms, strong criticisms against their fathers and husbands as transmitters. Uh, etc. And it shows that they had an understanding of what was required, what a muhaddith needed in order to, um, uh, in order to, or a, or a transmit of hadith needed in order to accurately transmit a hadith. 
So that's just some brief ideas. I'm working uh, on a project on that about women contributions in hadith. And then the second part of it is related to, um, you know, n you know, female narratives in in hadith. Uh, frankly, there is you know a hadith that are transmitted about women that are wrong and they are objectively not authentic, or more pro or or more likely to be inauthentic than authentic. Um, for example, you have the, the famous hadith that Allah masajid Allah. Do not uh, prevent the female slaves of Allah uh, from the masajid of Allah. And this is a, a an authentic hadith unanimously. We find in other versions that's clearly inauthentic. There's an addition at the end of it where it says, Though their houses are better for them. This is objectively wrong. It's clearly a mistake. I don't think it was, you know, a malicious mistake, or it's not some malicious tampering in the hadith. It's a genuine mistake. A person got uh, confused and mixed up and, and, and put those two hadith together. But it is nonetheless a mistake. And in fact, as a side note, there is nothing authentic which suggests that it's better for a woman to pray in her house. There is nothing authentic on, on the issue. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's very important that we focus on these issues. How, what, is, what are the authentic hadith narrative on women? And um, uh, one of the points that is, is related to both of these sides, both as, as in terms of contributions and you know, uh, simply what has been transmitted about women, um, is the issue of female hadith narratives or female-centric hadith narratives, how, how you want to say it, that some people claim that, um, uh, and, and maybe rightfully so because they're, they, they wrongly think that, that certain hadith are authentic or they've been told that they're authentic, so they may have a justification in, in part of the way they're thinking even though they're absolutely wrong, but they would say that that had more women been involved in the transmission of hadith, then there would be more female-centric hadith, uh, as opposed to uh, now, I guess, uh, in their claim that uh, you know some hadith are anti-woman or some men prevented female-centric hadith from being transmitted. And this is just not true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those claims that oh, it sounds like wow, but in reality, it's just not it's just not true. Um, and, and you find that uh, there's a hadith that are, you could say, pro-woman, they're, they're female-centric hadith or whatever, that are solely transmitted by men. There's not a woman on earth that is found in the asanid of this hadith. That talk about, for example, how a man cannot prevent a woman from going to the masjid. This is allowing them to leave their house and giving them freedoms and, and placing a restriction on their husbands and fathers and whatever. Right? So this is a female-centric hadith. And it's not, it has not been transmitted by women. This is something that is solely transmitted by men. Then we have a hadith that uh, uh, placed restrictions on the fathers in, in, you know, for example, marrying off their daughters. And it's transmitted by predominantly by men. On the other hand, 
there's a hadith which you know modern day so some of the modern day uh uh woman speakers they consider it to be perhaps anti-woman yet they're predominantly transmitted by women for example aisha radiallahu anha her statement where she essentially said had the prophet witnessed how women were now he would have prevented them from going to the masajid this is aisha's opinion only the only person to transmit this opinion from her is amra another woman so the first hundred or so years it's only being transmitted by women. Then finally, as the student of Amr who transmits it is a, is a man, Yahya bin Sa'id al-Ansari, and he transmits it, and when he transmits it, it appears as though, in reality, he's objecting to it. He was genuinely surprised and perhaps even taken aback when he even heard this opinion from, from, uh, from, from Amr. So when it came, to, you know, it's first exclusively transmitted by, by woman. Then when the man, the first man in the chain, the common link gets it, he's actually taken aback by it. So this idea of, you know, female-centric hadith, it's not very, very well thought out idea. It's something that people, um, so, so some people um, who, who, who uh, use, you know, woman as a way to, spread their own ideas, they, they, you know, espouse this, and it's not very well thought out of. But yeah, I mean, the, sorry, that, that my, my answer is kind of all over the place, but uh, that's, that's the general idea out, out there. And I'm working on a project, um, both uh, in related to women contributions to Hadith, a correct sound narrative on it, because women did have impactful contributions to Hadith, um, as well as a critique of what has been written on the topic. And then... On the other hand, a hadith that affect women or about women, um, a critical analysis of them, including the ones that, for example, talk about women leaving uh, their houses. Um, we did a collection of that. Uh, also talking about women going to them, uh, attending the masajid. Uh, what are the authentic hadith on that issue? Um, uh, issues about uh, disciplining uh, a wife, for example, the, uh, the authentic hadith on that issue uh, and whatnot. Wallahu ta'ala alam. You know, just uh, speaking, talking about uh, female contributions to hadith, I want to make a point. And, you know, a lot of people usually, I think, try to skip this point or they don't like to talk about it. Um, which is that I, I feel like there's often a hidden assumption when, when people talk about this, which is that um, we expect women to be doing the same thing a man would be doing at that time, which I don't have a problem with, right? You have transmitters, you have women who, you know, Give us valuable biographical data like other men. You have women, you know, who transmitted key pivotal hadith. But at the same time, I mean, you don't have to necessarily show that women were doing the same thing as men to argue that they had significant contributions. You know, let me give you an example. I mean, you know, a mother nurturing her child, you know, and essentially giving that child a proper Islamic upbringing that allows that child to eventually become a great scholar. You know, she's the one who essentially prepared the kid and, you know, ensured that, you know, he wouldn't get distracted, you know, throughout his life. I think this is a huge contribution, you know, motherhood. You know, you look at Imam Shafi'i, for example. Now, if, if anyone read Imam Shafi'i's biography, he was an orphan, you know, he was orphaned at an early, you know, when he was young. And he was in the city of Asqalan, which is in Palestine today. 
And his mom was afraid that if they stayed over there, since he's distant from his family, his tribe, which is Quraysh in Mecca, the kid would get lost. You know, the kid would essentially just be nothing. So she went back to Mecca. And it was there where he met his shiuch. He met his teachers. And that's where he changed. And, and he became a shafir. Right? So I feel like this aspect often is overlooked. Um, for various reasons. Sometimes, you know, intentionally and sometimes not. But, um, you know, I think we need to also, you know, just acknowledge that um, there are a lot of other ways Muslim, Muslim women can contribute. And sometimes it's even more important than certain contributions made by men. Right? And I just gave motherhood as an example. Um, but, but there's a lot more to say. Uh, ta'ala I had something I wanted to add, actually, and I forgot. Go for it, Abdullah. To go back to what we were previously talking about, which is, um, I believe you asked about what the field of hadith is facing today. And there's several different points um, that can be discussed in this context. I'm going to just be very brief. But one of them is related to Orientalism. And we have extremes. So, for example, uh, on the Orientalist side, you have many people who do not take Muslim contributions to Hadith seriously. And that is a problem. Um, and uh, not, not, not only uh, do they not take it, take it seriously, but they fall into great mistakes in how they deal with it. They have faulty assumptions due to unfamiliarity with either the texts or, um, uh, uh, or um, uh, you know, misunderstanding different quotes and whatnot. On the opposite side, you have many modern-day Muslim hadith researchers who have not realized that Orientalism has developed and the Western scholarship on hadith is not monolithic and uh, has developed greatly. Harold Motzki is not like Schacht, um, uh, for example. They many hadith researchers are still stuck in shakht mode and they've not moved out of it. And that's a problem. Um, uh, sometimes there is, uh, amongst hadithists, there is a sense that, um, that why should we read for a non-Muslim or read for a non-Arab uh, why should we learn another language to read hadith researcher research? It's them that should be writing in our language. We are the experts. And it's an arrogance that, because of it, has stunted the growth of hadith as a field. Yes, still there is excellent research in hadith, and the, and the hadith research in Arabic, uh, in many issues, surpasses English. However, if this... Um, this attitude is kept up in Muslim hadith circles, then the growth of hadith as a field will be severely stunted. And uh, luckily, this is not the problem for uh, you know some of the main researchers today. 
uh, in the field of hadith from the Muslim world, but a lot of the students of hadith still have this issue. And that's just a, an issue that I, I wanted to point out. Um, now, um, uh, at least you, 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 you brought up uh, the Twitter incident that happened in Mushkadana, and you know, some people you know, felt insulted that he had, he had graded a hadith. Um, like, who do you think you are? Are you a muhaddith? Um, and it reminded me, I was in Toronto over the weekend, and I was sitting with a couple good brothers uh, and mashayikh, and uh, one of them, he asked me, not in any malicious way, by the way, it was not malicious at all, he said, what would, it was, he was just asking, you know, presenting what some people say. He said, Abdullah, what would you say to those who say, well, who are you to grade hadith? And the best reply I could think of was um, from the B movie. I don't know if everyone here has watched it. But at the beginning of the B movie, um, it says, according to scientists, bees shouldn't be able to fly. But because bees don't care about science, they fly anyways. Or they don't care about what science says, they fly anyways. And essentially, that is my reply to the, the critics. You know, uh, according to them, Abdullah Mu'atez or whoever shouldn't be able to grade hadith. But because I don't care what the critics say, I still do. <laughs> Wallahu alam. That's awesome. Well, the, right, I guess it's getting a bit late here, and we're, we're probably way past the uh, hour and a half mark. But it sounds like Abdullah and Mushkadana can keep going for hours more. So inshallah, we can have some follow-up episodes to this. But uh, for now, I think it's best we, we close it out. All right. Sounds good, inshallah. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Abdullah, it was a pleasure having you as well. Habib Elbi, I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right, everybody. This has been episode one of Islamic Thought Podcast. Again, your host, Ied Nazis, signing out.